What's up, ladies and gentlemen? Joe Bonamassa here with the most exciting episode of Live from Nerdville. You <laughs> date. This is episode 50, and my guest is none other, the legendary, my friend and yours, Mr. Peter Frampton. Peter, thank you so much for being here, my friend. It's so it's such an honor to talk to you again. It, it's always good to talk to you, and especially on your 50th show. This is congratulations. Thank you very much. I, I, I never thought in my life as a, as a blues rock guitar player that I'd be in the broadcasting business. You right, know? right. But, well, we got into Rob, my keyboard player, you know very well. Rob Arthur and I have started a film company, so we've been doing all our own videos and we're even talking about doing short movies now. So I'm getting into that as well. So, you know, it's always good to have something that's new that's a challenge, you know. Yeah, you know, I've been, uh, I've been, uh, you know, producing records for the last three years. I've done a couple of my friends' records, and I never, I, I'd been asked before, but I never entertained the notion of doing it because a, I, I'm, I, I'm such a guilty person. I feel so riddled with guilt that that I didn't want to ruin somebody's life or career or record. But once I did a couple, I was like, you know, this is actually kind of fun, and it's a, it's another creative outlet that's yeah, not yeah. being the guy on stage. Yeah, I've, I've done a couple of productions and really enjoyed it. Um, it's just, for me, it's, uh, uh, you know, a lot of a lot of bands get signed um, because the record company is fighting over them because everybody wants them. And then they get them and they say, well, you know that, that music you're playing? Well, don't play any of that. We want you to sort of be more like this. Right. You know? And it, it, it just blows my mind. So anyway. <laughs> You know, it's like, it's, 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 everybody's gone through. It's like, we love you, Peter. We love you. Like here, let's have, let's have cigars and, and we'll, 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 we'll put it on your tab. Now just take everything that you do, you know? Right, right. It's like, you've got to take a band because you like them or an artist and they have, the reason you like them is because they're unique. There isn't, well, there isn't only one of them and that you want to capture that, that they have and make it sound better and bigger than than they they are, but still their character. You can't get rid of the character of the band because that's that's why you wanted to sign them or produce them in the first place. Exactly, you know. And you know, I think the good thing. I think there are pros and cons of the internet. Um, obviously, there's a lot of cons and and <laughs> con, con men on the internet. Um, but one of the one of the, one of the pros I, I always said for for an emerging artist is that you don't have to have hundreds of thousands of dollars in marketing money from a label anymore to go out there and find your core fans. You can right. you could put something out there. And if, if it scales and gets a little bit of traction, people go, hey, check this out. And they share it. And it costs really, the, other than the production, you know, which right. could be everything from an iPhone to, you know, Paramount Pictures. But it, it, it's, it really has evened out the, the, the record company artist, you know, relationship. Yes. And I, I feel that, um, <clears throat> you know, with my management that they have such a, it's almost like the management team now uh, that I have Ken Levitans and, and Lisa Jenkins, my two managers, and uh, Vector Management is basically um, all the people that would have worked at the record company, but they're now working at management with promotion, internet, this and that, you know, merchandise and all that, and coming up with these great ideas. Um, whereas, you know, in the old days, it, you just had a manager and the record company did everything, you know. Right. So... And, the, and then the record company would pay you back at like some sort of Santa Monica Boulevard, Shylock, pawnbroker, you know, level. You know, you'd be like, yeah, I got 11 cents per record. Well, what, what right. happened to the other four bucks? You know, well, the, sto the story that I heard was that, you know, I, I obviously I did a book and 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 so I, I signed a contract with the with the Hachette for, for the for the book and what had a great experience with them. And um, but I heard years ago that the the difference, the main difference between uh, a, a publishing a book publishing yeah. uh, for a writer uh, contract uh, is that it was written um, in a, in the public houses of London with the well-to-do men that with the lords and they would write out what the writer should get should own this own that it, it's changed a little bit but basically it was all on the side of the writer not the publisher you know. And then, but the difference is that some sometime in the 30s or the 40s, 
two families met in New York on the George Washington Bridge, got out of their limos and said, you know, with this, uh, these records, we're going to sell a lot of records now. So I tell you what, this is what we'll give the artist and uh, give them a car every, give them a car every, every six months. Don't worry, he won't, they won't need money, you know. So it's basically, <laughs> I mean, our, our first, uh, the Herd's first record deal, we had a, an English penny to split between four of us, you know. So <laughs> we never made any money on records, put it that way. It was almost made impossible for you to earn money. Yeah, I, I think my first, my only major label contract that I did as a solo artist, it was with Sony. And I was dropped after, I don't know, four weeks of the record comes out a month later, you get the phone call. Yeah, it didn't sell. Okay, fine. <laughs> and, and then we started putting out our own records. And we put out this record called Blues Deluxe, and it, it sold, I think, initially sold like maybe 12,000 copies. And looking at my deal with Sony, the, to make the kind of money that we made just selling 12,000 copies out of our, literally the trunk of our car. Right. Okay. I would have had to sold probably 1.2 to 1.5 million copies to make the exact same amount of money as selling 12,000. I said, there's your sign. You know, the, the fix is in. Right, right, exactly, exactly. And then, of course, you know, all the don't worry, we'll we'll we'll, uh, we'll promote it this way. That we'll prom and then you get your statement and everything. That dinner, I paid for that dinner too. Right, and, you know, you pay for everything. You know, yeah, and you're paying it back less than a dollar. You're like that dinner that was three hundred and seventy-five at Musso and Frank's. You know, <laughs> it, it, you're paying it back with your your negotiated royalty rate, which is like it's. Yeah, I, I I just think you know the 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 people doing it independently, like such as yourself, you know, just the management and just do the vertical integration. It's the only way to it's the only way to really survive anymore. Right. Well, I I have to say that I was, um, well, we were humble pie got signed by uh, A and M Records. Uh, Jerry Moss and Herb Albert, of course, owned it originally, and it was the biggest independent label um, in the world, basically at that. At that time and I have to say that I felt like privileged to be with that label because it wasn't like any of the others at all it, yeah. it was all about music um, if you wanted to discuss something you just knocked on Jerry's door and you walked right in and you know you didn't have to make an appointment I remember the day we chose the cover for um, Comes Alive I had uh, they'd selected like some live shots. Obviously, we wanted a live one. And um, so I said, well, I don't know. This one's too long, you know, the one that have entered. So I, I called up Jerry uh, and, hey, Jerry, can you come and help us? We need to choose it. So he just comes over the lot, you know, we, they were on the um, old, what's it, Charlie Chaplin lot was, uh, it's now Henson's lot. But um, so Jerry Moss, the president, comes in and and we go i said i like this one but it's it's this way he said and we need something this way you know for a double he said no you just turn it up this way and we'll have the album come like this you know so it, you'll open it and it'll it'll be the full length picture on both outside yeah. what a great idea right. so um you know those things wouldn't have happened um in a, in a, m many of the other labels. And, and the other thing is, of course, they, uh, labels in those days, but especially A&M, if they believed in you, mm -hmm. they would stick with you. It wouldn't be four weeks after the release, right. as it is nowadays. I agree, that's the way it is. Uh, all those making a second album with this label, one step, where are you going, uh, Mr. Fenton? So, you know, <laughs> so, um, you know, they stuck with me for four albums. Um, the fourth one, Frampton, did sell pr reasonably well, um, but nothing obviously like the next record, which was the live one. So um, I was nervous at that point that they were going to drop me, you know, before yeah. the live album. And, you know, that's that that's the thing about, you know, you know, comes alive is it really unfolds like a, a greatest hits package of those four records that you right. did pre previously. And it was just, you know, a, a great band, a working band on the road, you know, and and lightning in a bottle, you know, yeah. and then that was, is, you know, you just captured the moment. 
Well, and there's, I, I always say there were those, it was, I cherry picked those four albums, but there was a track from Humble Pie, from Rock On, Shine On as well. So it actually straddled about six years worth of material, you know? Right. So that's why it was so difficult to compete with myself after that. You know, um, I asked you this, uh, I've interviewed uh, you before um, on our Keeping the Blues Alive cruise. Thank you very yeah. much. Honored. Yeah, no, it was great. And, um, and I've asked you this before, but it, but it bears repeating. I said this, and I was thinking about it uh, before I asked you the question. I was like, there's maybe six people in the world, maybe seven, that knows what it's like to not only be the biggest, most popular artist in their genre, but in the world of music, all music. And you are one of them. When Frampton Comes Alive, it's one of the greatest selling records of all time. You were the biggest thing in music, bigger than Sinatra, bigger than Elvis. You know, well, was, I don't know about that, but you know, but it was what you at know at that moment, yeah, yeah. At that moment in time, you were it was the biggest thing in music. What did it feel like when you knew that it was about that was, you know, it was starting to scale and you're like, I, I cannot believe what's happening here. I mean, you know, it, it was probably living inside a tornado, I would imagine. Yes, um, I was actually in the eye of, of the hurricane, let's call it a hurricane, yeah. and, and everything else was going, zooming around outside my, my bubble. And I, I think that the, the, day that uh, the day that I got the call that we'd gone to number one in just about all the trades, um, right. Billboard, Cashbox, Record Mirror, there were a lot back then. Um, and um, across the board. And I was so inspired uh, by that because I thought um, this is, I mean, it, it can't go any higher. That's good. Right, right. <laughs> it's, and and um, a number one record was beyond all my dreams. But um, then a month or maybe six weeks later, I got the second call. And right. I was asked to sit down. And that's when I was told that it was the biggest selling record of all time. Right. And um, uh, in that, in a year, I, I, un unfortunately for Carol King, I'd passed her, her record. Right. Um, but um, so that's when I got scared. That's that's when I realized you can you can have a number one album and maybe have a number fifteen next time. They'll say you're not doing as well, but at least you know it's it's not now you're the guy that's the number one. There's, right. There have been lots of artists, I think, that have have just shot up so quickly and come all the way down, like I did. Um, and, and it's when when it becomes uh, people just don't want to hear it anymore for a while. Right. <laughs> it becomes overkill, you know. Yeah. I don't want to see another interview picture of Peter Frampton. I just want to, you know, the music's great, but you know, it became just overkill. Did you ever burn out on yourself? Did, did um, you ever just go, I, I don't want to be that guy anymore? Oh, yes. Oh, uh, all the time. <laughs> um, I, I think that, um, you know, the, the, the thing about um, the crash after the going to the moon um, was that uh, it was very hard, obviously. I went down to, I was, I owed more than I had coming in, you know. Um, and which is hard to believe, but it's the truth. Right. And um, and then to build back from uh, nothing, um, that's where I found the challenge again. That's where I found I'm down on the ground and I, it, you never stop paying your dues, you know. Just when you, it's like Bill Gates said, uh, there was something online yesterday about him saying, success can be the most dangerous thing for somebody because you you can uh especially if it's new success to you you can start to become arrogant and think you are the be all and end all which i did for about three weeks um but then i realized um you know that i'm still the same person and um you know it's just that you don't change uh, it's the way people uh, around you change yes um except for your family you know yeah. and uh so it was um 
it was a difficult period, um, but um, you know, over the years, I just tried different things. Um, I didn't have a label for a while, and then all of a sudden, you know, I just after I I did a little recording with uh, Steve Marriott again from Humble Pie in the uh, early '90s there, and then unfortunately we lost him, and um, so at that point. John Kolodna, John Kolodna said to me at, um, I forget what ho whose house we were at. It's like a get together out in LA. He said, Peter, you know, yeah, Peter, your solo career is over. You know, you need to form a band. So um, I was very upset when he said that. But you know what? I thought, because he, he just had damn Yankees or something he put together. All right. And, uh, <laughs> So I thought, mm, maybe he's right. So that's when I, I, I tried to start something with Steve. But after that didn't, uh, well, it ended, unfortunately. But um, uh, right after that, I just called all my old bandmates. I hadn't toured for quite a while. And this was 92. And I said, I got to go play. Right. That's what I do. I miss it so much, you know. And that's, you know, my old manager, DeAnthony, when we parted ways, um, at that particular moment, things weren't good for me. And he just, um, with all the things that I didn't like him too much for, um, uh, he definitely had a sixth sense about, otherwise I don't think, I, I have to credit him with, with partially with my success, obviously. But uh, uh, he said, it's okay, don't worry. You know what to do. And what he meant was, go play live, build back that following. And that's what I did from 92 to today, you know? So, and it just built and built and built back because you've got to have the goods if you're going to be a live act like yourself. You're a wonderful yeah. live act, great player, great band. And, um, you know, we always enjoy playing with you guys. And, um, you know, you people come because they know that they're going to see fantastic a fantastic show um and it's going to be quality you know you are a performer um i am a performer it's something that is inside us and we have to do it you know right and um so i'm really hoping that i get a chance to do that again you know um the 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 thing about it it, it must have felt so good you know like when you started back in 1992 then in was it i believe it was the whole year has just gone by i know by, by the end of 2019 i you know i saw you guys I, I was on the road but i saw you guys were playing i think it was the forum here sold out madison square garden yeah. you know and you know steve mackey our mutual friend on bass who's been filling in for our guy michael is telling me it's like you know man it was so cool to see these massive crowds i mean it must have been such a a great moment for you to look out there and go oh yeah i'm back and, oh, well, and, yeah, and it, it was uh, fantastic. The thing that I I take away from that entire tour was because um, we did um, some Canada dates, Canadian dates, and and obviously American dates, and um, was that every night it was a different audience, a different city, but I felt the same feeling coming from the crowd. Right, it was this. You know, we're here. We we want you to get well, and and we're here for you, and we love you. You know, the yeah. love coming from the audience was something I'd never uh, I'd never felt quite that before. And I thank everybody from for coming to that tour because it made our tour. That was obviously one of the best tours in my career so far. And right. uh, it's because of the people. It's yeah. because of the fans that were just. People, there were probably people there that hadn't seen me since 76. Right. And they come back, yeah. you know, finally, you yeah. know, um, because going into the sort of pop idiom I did with the follow up album to Comes Alive, I lost a lot of credibility as a musician. And finally, thanks to people like David Bowie, who invited me to play with him on the Glass Spider tour and on his record. Um, he took me around the world and reintroduced me in 87 to, uh, as the guitar player. Right. He could have right. had anybody, but yeah. he chose me. You know? Yeah. You guys were schoolmates. 
Yes. Um, your father taught, I think, taught at the school or taught taught David. Yes. Uh, um, my father knew David before I did. Um, mm -hmm. He was, uh, <clears throat> uh, my father was the head of this enormous, it was a technical high school. So it was very heavy on on woodwork, metalwork, you, you name it, everything, you know, uh, technical drawing, my dad did history of architecture, uh, fine art, you know, whatever, anything, typography, photography, he taught the lot. And um, so when, uh, luckily, he was a very liked uh, teacher, that because I went to the school. So, um, <laughs> but anyway, I, I went to um, the school on a weekend, there was a charity event, um, raising money for pencils and erasers and um, or as we call them rubbers and um, <laughs> and um, there was a band playing on the school steps and it was a band called the Conrads right. and um, first of all the, the guitar player Neville was playing a white Stratocaster this is 1961 62 nice and i'm foaming at the mouth you know because yeah. we we are hoffners we can only get hoffners you know right and but he had the damn strat so once i got over the fact that he was playing a real fender um that's when i looked over to the left and i couldn't stop looking at, at the chap on the left who was playing saxophone so they were doing those instrumentals with it, like Dwayne Eddy and the sax yeah. and everything. Plus he was singing Little Richard numbers and Elvis Presley numbers, fantastic. You know? yeah. And I just looked at my dad and I said, dad, who is that? And he said, oh, that's Jones. He's in my art form, very creative chap. And um, so, so I said, well, dad, I think I want to be him. So the, the next year I went to the school and um, uh, first lunchtime I made a beeline for Dave and and we've been friends ever since so wow. since I was 12 years old it, you know uh, did you when he was doing like his Ziggy Stardust you know knowing him as long as you had you know at that point we were like oh yeah that's just him being him yeah well the the thing that I realized about uh, about Dave was that um he created a character um for each um, record, each tour, ev everything was, he was an actor, you know, mm -hmm. as on top of all the other incredible things that he did, um, writing and singing and, and, and his art as well, you know? Yeah. So um, yeah, he was, uh, and, and I think a lot of artists learned from him, Madonna, I think, um, uh, reinvented herself by, a lot of people did, um, Prince, I know Prince was a big fan because we got to meet Prince on the tour. And, um, but uh, yeah, I, I think the, um, I believe it's the Hunky Dory album where Dave is laying down on a couch with a full, full dress on. Right. <laughs> <laughs> with the long hair, you know, yeah. very feminine. And I showed my dad and my dad went, oh, God damn it. I said, I've had it with that. You know, he couldn't, <laughs> what's he doing? What's he doing? So anyway, but it worked for Dave. <laughs> it's, you know, it's, it's, you know, the, like those kind of moments that when, you know, like you, you, you watch as a fan and you go, how did these, how did people come up with it? They're just trying to be pr provocative and, right. and get a rise in, in, in it's, it's rebellion, you know, like, yes. you know, now everything is, everybody wants likes and clickbait and, 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 you know, comments that are all positive and thumbs up. You know, I, I miss the days of rock and roll where it was, it was pushing the boundaries. It was like yeah. you know, it, it poking the bear and just seeing who who gets upset by it. You know, because it, yeah, it's dangerous. Well, it, it gets to the point now where that guy that would I forget his name, Stevo, when when you know how am I going to attract an audience? I'm going to try and kill myself every episode. Right. And <laughs> yeah, exactly. you know, um, it's come to that. So it's it's no longer you you cut your hair in a weird way or color your hair in a weird way. You've got to do something that's death defying. Yeah. <laughs> I remember um you were nice enough. This was uh, this would be about 20 years ago. Oh I my think. god. 20 years ago, you were nice enough to to have my band open up for your tour. It was a fall of 2002. Yeah, so it'll be 20 years next year. And um, and 
me being a, a, a cocky kid, I, I, I get to meet Peter Frampton for the first time. I think, I think it was uh, Donnie. Donnie was like, hey, yes. you want Mike? I was like, yeah, of course I do. And of course I got to, you know, me being just a jerk, I got to go, hey, Peter, you know, I just want to let you know that you are, you are, were involved with one of the, it, it, in my opinion, the greatest rock and roll live record of all time. And I could see you roll your eyes going, of course, it comes alive. And I go, no, it's Humble Pie rocking the film. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I appreciated that. Yeah. I was like, and um, that record changed me. That record made me want to be, uh, along with the Jeff Beck Truth record and mm -hmm. the record with Eric Clapton, John May on the Blues Breakers. Yes. Those three records made me want to be the musician I am today because it was such a heavy, wonderful take on blues, yeah. you know? And my question to you is, is when you recorded that record um, and, and you, you, I think you left the band before that record came out because- Right, I, I mixed it. I, I did most of the mixing with Eddie Kramer. And then once I saw the cover, um at that time when that was getting ready to release that's when i left yeah and did you realize how good it was when you when you when you heard the tapes back yes we well i just i just thought it was a really um the band was always good live and uh, uh you know it sounds so good at the fillmore it's like the beacon today yeah. um in new york the fillmore was the same kind of sound same vibe um, and so I knew we had something special, yes. But, you know, I, I also knew because of that, that it was probably going to be successful, uh, the most successful record. And at that, at that time, then I realized, well, if I'm going to go off on my own and start my own solo career, this is the time to do it because if I stay, I will never leave. Right. You know, and I made a concerted, uh, well, a decision um, that I got to do it now. Um, and uh, obviously no one was happy, but, um, you know, and then then I left and the, <laughs> the album zoomed up the, the charts uh, around the world and, and became Humble Pie's first gold record, you know. Right. So I thought I'd made the biggest mistake of my life. It's it's tough when you when you got to make a decision like that, and then you see this the hard work that you put into it pay off, and then you're like, oh, now I have now I have to make a record, you know? <laughs> what? It, you know, it's it's so great when you, when I listen to Humble Pie, it, the, the, I, the the your your voice, which is fantastic, and and Steve Marriott's voice blended so well so well together. You know, they, they, you know, it's like it's always like hearing brothers and sisters sing together. It was like. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was, and I can imagine, you know, back in 1970 or 71, the monitors weren't great, you know, or if you even had a monitor. Yeah, right. And, That's more like it. Yeah. You know, and you got the stacks behind you and they're not quiet, you know, yeah. how did you guys keep pitch center? Like, you know, it's like, was it just this thing you had internally or was there any, any kind of technique you use or you just sang into the mic? Just sang into the mic and hoped we could hear. The, the main thing about um, being the opening band, and there's two more bands on after you, is that you generally don't get a sound check. Right. You know, yeah. um, so your monitors are, um, are dubious uh, <laughs> anyway. So um, it was uh, as, as soon as... Um, as soon as I left, I think Humble Pie got their own monitoring system that they carried with them, you know, right. because they didn't trust anybody, you know. So, but um, no, it was um, uh, just. I mean, there are pitch problems. I mean, when you when you've got a monitor for me, I mean, I use in ears. I'm using them right now, um, and you don't have to blow it out, and and you can hear pitch so, so much better, and uh, it, it's. Being a tech head, um, I really enjoy that. I mean, yeah. we, you know, some people said, "Well, how do you hear the audience?" I said, "Well, we don't just have mics on the on the equipment and the drums and the voices. We have mics on the audience, right. so that we can turn them up and down. So we we don't lose the feel of the crowd." Right. I remember, I, I use in ears when we do acoustic shows. Right. And I'm still, I still like the wedge and I, cause I like 
for the guitar, I find the sweet spot and I can just dart around the stage. But when we played Carnegie Hall, the audience mics were reversed. Uh oh. So if somebody <laughs> would say something, you know, we're, we're shooting a DVD, a very right. expensive DVD. Thank you, Local One. Um, so if somebody said something and I would look over there, it's coming from the other direction. Yeah. You're like, oh. and, and I realized this about halfway through the show. So I'm like trying to adjust. And it, it was it was a little bit of a, a, a distraction. And I ended up pulling one of the ears out. When when you when you play live, um, I mean, your guitar rig sounds amazing. I mean, I was just it always has, you know, the, you. The, the use of the Leslie's and stuff like that. And you have a very, very specific sound for each song. And, mm -hmm. and you know, when you play live, you know, how important is it to make sure that those sounds are the same every night? Do you use, do you, do you, do you have like a platform you put the, the gear on or is it you kind of going with the stage and the, and the, and the room? Well, because of in-ears, um, I was able to turn down a little bit. We all turn, our stage level is, is a little quieter because it'll blast, it'll blast out the vocal mics if I play too loud, right? So, um, but basically it's, it sounds exactly the same every night, yeah. no matter where we are within reason, you know, the, the, the room mics and stuff like that make it sound different. But we really um, have a wonderful uh, monitor guy, uh, Matt Fitzgerald, who um, is just so on it and has yeah. been with us for years. And uh, so it's uh, pretty much um, uh, every night is just, it sounds like a record, you know, that's, that's for me what I really like. Right. I, I, I was uh, watching your show a couple of years ago with your son and, right. and I, I went to your son and I said, I said, it sounds like dropping the needle out here. It was like, ding, there's the record. And your voice, to me, over the years has gotten stronger. And 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 which is which is in, you know, it's it's just. I mean, it sounds just like it. it what techniques do you use vocally? Okay. To, to 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 keep the chops up because you play all in the same keys as you did originally, yes. and and not a lot of people do that. You know, sometimes you can't even recognize the song. You're like, is that like four steps down? You know, it's like yeah. Yeah, there's 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 only one song that I do a semitone down. That's Doctor. I don't need no Doctor because I can't reach the note Steve can. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. or could you know? So but no, we keep them in the same keys. Um, but um, I've been doing vocal exercises for many years, um, and um, it's it's something that once I got the uh, got into the habit of doing them. Um, it, it's just, uh, it, it's a technique that was used by, um, uh, by, by singers, uh, in the church, um, and in opera, you know, it's a very old, um, much used technique and, um, you, you exercise, um, about two hours before the show. Um, I don't sing at a sound check. Right. I don't because I'll blow it out then. So, and then as soon as the sound checks over, that's usually when I start the exercises and then, <clears throat> and then I will, uh, but it's, it's pretty amazing. The, the people that I've uh, helped out with these, these vocal exercises um, and it, it helps for people that are speaking too. It's not just for singers. Yeah. Um, uh, and uh, people that have said, you know, I had no voice and I just, you know, I remembered you gave me those vocal exercises and I did exactly what you said. And all of a sudden I had a voice and I was able to do the show. I said, yeah, they are magical, you know, so yeah. it, it's a it's a great thing. I, I, you know, it's it's like every once in a while, like my biggest nightmare on the road is getting sick because, mm -hmm. you know, it's it, it's very difficult to navigate through a head cold or a sinus infection or, you know. And, you know, I, I've been going to the same vocal instructor for 20 years and he's given me these techniques that that for talking like we are now or mm -hmm. singing. And if people know you're sick, 
the it it's the the home remedy vocal treatments that are hilarious. Uh-huh. You know, it's like, oh, I'm not feeling so good. Oh, I know what you got to do. Take some cayenne pepper, put it in some Jack Daniels, and put a <laughs> splash of put a splash of you know you know lemon juice on top. I'm like, I'm not doing that. I'm not doing it. <laughs> I would like no. to survive. You know? Exactly. Exactly. No, it's just it's like vocal cords are just like uh, any other muscle in your body. They need warming up, like yeah. before you run. You know. Yeah. It's the same thing. You know, um, I want to talk to you about your playing. Um, as a guitarist, when I hear you play, you have such a unique. I I can identify you with two notes, which is a great mark of a true legend and a great um it's like if a rock and roll a great rock and roll guitar player had a bebop mentality (laughs) you know what i mean because you your phrasing especially the faster runs you know drop it into a different context and different kind of music that's like oh it's almost straight bebop right but it's but it's in rock and roll and it's you know I mean, tell me how you developed that. Who were who some of your influences in Guitar Heroes? Because we all have Guitar Heroes. Yes. Well, of course, um, you know, I, I started off with Hank Marvin, The Shadows, um, mm. instrumental band. <clears throat> so I, I was used to doing instrumentals, melodic instrumentals, for when I was very young, eight years old, yes. I started, 10 years old or whatever. And um, <clears throat> then the same day my dad brought that Shadows album home, he brought the best of Django Reinhardt, Stefan Grappelli, and the Hot Club de France. Right. Um, I couldn't get out of the room quick enough uh, when my dad put that on, you know, right. at first, you know. And after the shadows with this nice Strat sound through the box AC-15, you know, beautiful, with the, the echo and everything. Yeah. Miazzi in Italian echo. Right. And um, so so anyway, the next weekend, um, Dad said, boy, you gonna put your Shadows record on? I said, yeah, yeah, and I'll put that on. And then I'd take it off and I went, I'd leave the room. And then I got halfway up the stairs and a track came on from Django and I just stopped. I went, oh my God, yeah, this is incredible. Yeah. Okay, get over the fact that it's an acoustic and I know you wanna play electric, but what did he just play? <laughs> and so then it was a two album thing. My dad and I bonded over, over the shadows and, and, uh, and Django. And wow. So that's where I first got the love of jazz, gypsy jazz. Um, and then when I, uh, I was in my first early band when I was, 10, 11 or something, the Trubies, and we did all Shadows numbers and then the Beatles came out, so we had to start singing and all that. Um, but then this, the second band, I was still at school and it was called The Preachers. And the drummer was the original drummer, Tony Chapman was the original drummer of the Rolling Stones. And oh, wow. he, his best friend, who he'd introduced to the Stones, um, he was in the band first, was Bill Wyman. Oh, wow. So, <laughs> so anyway, um, I Bill felt awful when you know Charlie replaced Tony. Obviously, um, it must have been a bad decision. Whatever, I don't know. Um, and uh, so that's when Bill said to Tony, "Look, you um, get a, when you get a band together, I, I owe you big, and and I'll produce it and help you manage it and fund right. it and all that." So he did. So I met Bill when I was 14. And um, that's that's where, uh, with that band, we were doing, the, the day I joined that band, Tony, I went over to Tony's place and he gave me like, you know, a stack of albums. And it was Roland Kirk, mm-hmm. um, Miles Davis, um, Otis Blue, right. Otis Redding, Rolling Stones, mm-hmm. um, Wes Montgomery. I mean, just it, and then then all the the um, R and B stuff as well, and then blues. Um, and so, and he's he marked all the tracks down by Tuesday. I want you to play all these. You got to know all these. So that was my thesis on just about the most diverse set of of music ever. Yeah. And 
and a lot of it was jazz. And yeah. so that's where it came from. And I was listening to um, uh, Django, obviously, but Kenny Burrell, Wes Montgomery, early um, um, George Benson when he was 16, playing with Jack McDuff and Joe Pass, you name it, the list goes on and on and on. And uh, But I was also listening to the blues at the same time. Blues Breakers, yeah. uh, like you. Yeah. Um, Hendrix, when he came out with Are You Experienced? Um, you know, and every Peter Green, um, Mick Taylor, you know, all these people sort of went through the school of John Mayall, you know? Right. And um, it was a very seductive, as you know, uh, a very seductive style uh, of, yeah. of the way Eric and those guys kind of took the American blues and then they, it's not going to sound the same. I can't sound like you. You can't sound like me. We Neither of us can sound like anybody else. But yeah. but you take it and you do it and it becomes you. you you're doing it. Right. It's your version of it. And and I think as as B.B. Uh, King uh, said in an interview, I remember he said, um, you know, in the 70s, he said, uh, uh, let me just explain something to you. The blues was dying a death in, in, in America. You know, our own art form, jazz and blues were dying. And then uh, this guy from uh, John, Bla uh, John Mayall's Blues Breakers, Eric somebody, comes over here mm -hmm. and play reintroduces the blues to the blues people who, right. who invented it, you know? Yeah. And he said, that's why I have a career today. And he, yeah. he'll say that he would, he would say that to you every time, you know, thanks to the English guys that came over, back over and, and told us, remember your blues that you invented, you know? Right. Now it's hip, you know? It, yeah. BB, BB would always say that. And, and, he had such reverence for the English interpretation of, of that music, you know, mm -hmm. and, and my gateway to the blues was through the English was, it was through right. the aforementioned, you know, and it was more, I just found, I just, I just like the guitar sound better. <laughs> it was just yeah, yeah, yeah. straight up, <laughs> you know, have you ever seen that video with Benson um, where he's playing with, with Jack McDuff and he's got a sunburst Les Paul, like a, like a burst. No, I he's haven't. Got, no it's and he's swinging he's he's got like a tweed basement and a burst and about four years ago five years ago god time flies um george came to one of my shows in phoenix right uh -huh. and we had a photo shoot together for this magazine and he was promoting his new benson model and sweetest sweetest guy ever yeah and, yeah. Lo and looks about 35 years old even though he's almost eight he looks like he's 35. <laughs> so of course me being that guy I gotta go, George. You still got that sunburst, Les Paul? Is <laughs> he goes? No, nah, man, I got rid of that. And I saw, so, so I started asking him about the D'Angelicos and the stuff right. like that. And he's like, "Man, you know more about my gear than I do." I'm like, "I know." I go, this, this, "I'm a geek," you know. <laughs> but but it was one of those things where whether he's playing the Ibanez or he's playing the burst, or he's, he sounded like George Benson. Yeah, you know. And yeah, it's yeah. it's the, it's these. You know exactly, and it's like this morning I was listening to uh, Dan, my drummer Dan Wojciechowski, uh, who you know um, well, and, uh, and he just sent me a present out of the blue. He sent me a brand new, uh, never released double album of Wes Montgomery. Wow! Um, and um, my goodness, the man could shred. You know, yeah. in later years he was more melodic and and um, less notes, mm -hmm. but back then, um, we're talking in 60s, I, I guess, um, I should read the liner notes, but it's, um, uh, again, and it's the thumb. How do you play that fast with just the thumb? So yeah. anyway, um, everyone's got there, and, and it didn't matter whether he played a 175 or he played, um, yeah. you know, wh whatever Gibson or whatever guitar, you know? Right. Um, he sounded like Wes Montgomery, same thing. Right. Yeah. Um, as, a, as a guitar geek and, uh, you know, fans of this show would be, I would be remiss and, 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 and shamed online if I didn't ask you. Um, I know you've told this story a lot, but did you ever think you'd see the Black Les Paul ever again? Had you written that off? 
Oh, yes, I'd, I'd totally written it off. Um, and to the point where, you know, when I did move, uh, the first time I moved to Nashville in the mid 90s, Mike, Mike McGuire from the custom shop said, uh, you know, I just went in and said hi and everything. He said, you're not playing a Les Paul, are you? So I said, no, I'm not because um, I, I can't play Les Pauls except for that one. There's something special about it, you know? Yeah. And um, so I was playing everything, Telecasters, right. not so much Strats, but but uh, SGs and, and then I bought a Burst, I bought a 60 Burst in um, 1980 for $6,500, I might add. And um, <laughs> you have it? no, no, it was too bright for me then because right. I was just remembering the, the, um, the mellow sound of, of, of right. the Phoenix, you know, yeah. which wasn't called the Phoenix. So, um, yeah, but anyway, um, so you want to know how, should we tell the people in a tell, nutshell? Tell the folks, I mean, like the, there was a plane crash, a cargo plane crash, your gear had come from South America and the iconic Frampton comes alive, black triple pickup Les Paul is, in, is on the plane and it is lost. Yes. We're sitting in Panama on a day off <clears throat> and we get the news that the crash, you know, but we were more, not so worried about the equipment, but obviously people lost their lives and, yeah, yeah. and that was you know, horrible. Um, and, um, but anyway, um, uh, you know, it was, I felt completely lost, you know, I, I went to uh, Norm's, Right. I went everywhere to right. every guitar dealer and they're all trying to give me these or sell me these um, three pickup, the, the real customs. Yeah, yeah. Which is nothing like what the Phoenix was, you know. Right. One of the Like eight. that. Right. <laughs> yeah, a 57, you know. Yes. Is that a 57? This is a 59. This oh, okay. belonged to George Coyman's of uh, Golden Erie. Oh, wow. Look at so, that. And uh, it, yeah, it came from Holland. It's been around the block, this one. Yeah. But, it, but it's it would have been the exact same guitar in 57 or 58. It's they're all right. the same. Same thing. But mine was actually a 54 body um, mm -hmm. with, a, you know, a Black Beauty. And uh, then Mark Mariana, who gave it to me, was the guy that, that put the three pickups, changed, changed pickups and put the third one in the middle and sent it back to Gibson to be refinished. And then he gave it to me in... Uh, in 1970 and um and he always gets the number one guitar of every time they do a frampton guitar Mark very always nice gets number one nice. because nice i guy. can't ever thank him enough oh I, I and i spoke to him the other day he's doing good so anyway so we're sitting in panama and uh road manager rodney eckerman comes and says uh planes crashed and all the gear's gone it's a huge fireball. They were loaded with gas, obviously, so it was they couldn't get near it for like five hours, and we were just, you know, in shock, and um, tried to try to uh, get equipment together in Panama, but there was no way. We were playing a stadium. We had no PA. We had no nothing. You know, no drums. Right. So basically, we had to escape Panama um, because of Noriega's. Uh, was the uh, running the country there. And I, I think it was one of his brothers was the promoter. And that's how my book starts when we were overhearing um, out by the pool, the promoter is talking to Rodney, my tour manager, and going, Rodney's going, um, we have no equipment, we can't play. So, uh, so he said, let me tell you, Rodney, um, if, 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 if Peter Frampton does not play, First I kill you, and then I kill Peter Frampton. So, in my best Russian accent, he was. Right, <laughs> right. You're right. He's a Spanish, um, but anyway. Uh, so we all went. Oh, God, we're in for it now. So we literally had to escape. I'll, I'll, I'll get a Pan Am. Thank you. Right. It doesn't exist anymore. Helped us out. So anyway, um, I'm playing all sorts of different guitars, not liking much at all, not feeling comfortable, and then. Uh, Gibson, Mike McGuire, and I got together, and, and uh, he said, 
we should make you one from your memory. Yes. And so we spent a year um, working on it together. And, uh, and it's a great guitar and I have a bunch of them. And um, that's, that's what I was playing uh, when I got back into Les Paul's. And, um, and then of course, 30 years later, um, 2010 then, um, that's when um, I got this email and there were these pictures of the guitar now, you know, right. it, 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 it's alive. Yeah. And I screamed and just could not believe it. And then um, it had ended up being sold to someone who moved to Curacao, the island of Curacao off. We, our last show there was Caracas, Venezuela. So if you, when you retire, you move to Curacao, it's a beautiful island. And um, so we go on another generation and the guy who played it all these years, put it in the closet and forgot about it. And his kid now wants to play guitar. So he goes to the closet and he gets the guitar and he says, dad, this guitar really doesn't play well. He said, can I take it to a luthier and um, have them at least make it playable? And he said, all right, then, not thinking what he's doing here. Um, so he goes to this luthier um, and um, walks in, opens the case, and the luthier's eyes sort of double in size, but he doesn't say anything. He knows what it is, you know, right. and uh, so... The kid said, can you make it playable? He said, yeah, leave it with me overnight. Mm -hmm. I'll, I'll make it playable for you in the morning. Right. So kid leaves, he takes it apart. His friends in Holland, because a, a Dutch uh, island, he's got friends in Holland saying, that's Frampton's guitar, take it apart. You know, let's forensically take pictures. So right. there they all were I, in this email. And I'm going like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Right. You know, there it is. I can't and you, knew, you knew right away. Oh yeah, yeah. Because I just before we left um, New York, um, I put some instead of black um, uh, pickups with white surrounds, mm -hmm. I put in white white pickups, right? Um, Seymour's and uh, just for something different, you know. Yeah. And so there it is. There are the three white pickups. And um, so uh, anyway, it the kid leaves. And they take all the pictures. Then the kid comes back in the morning and the next morning and, and the luthier says, uh, son, you know what this guitar is. This is not your guitar. This is Peter Frampton's guitar. And the kid just grabbed the guitar, put it in the case and ran away. Right. So that's, that's what we heard. And then we knew who had it. We just didn't know where it was. And then within the next two years, a gray area there mm -hmm. that I, I won't go into, but um, the kid comes back and he says, look, I want to buy a new guitar. I need $5,000. I'll sell it to you for $5,000. Well, the luthier didn't want to buy it because it's stolen merchandise. Right. So he went to the minister of tourism in Curacao right. <laughs> and said, look, can the island buy this Peter Frampton's guitar? Because they're not going to put the island in prison for right. stolen merchandise. So lo and behold, they, the two of them come up to Nashville and bring the guitar. And there's a there's a three camera shoot of when they right. come in the room on on YouTube. You can see me getting it back that day. Must have been so emotional too to to think you'd never see that you know an instrument that you bonded with so heavily, and thinking well it was lost to new it, the the plane crash was what the late seventies was seventy eight. The plane crash was 1980. Oh, 1980. Okay. It was. Ten, and, I had the guitar ten years exactly. So. Right. And and then you then it's there. It is in Nashville. Um, how did it play uh, when you when you first opened the case? Did did the guy at least set it up okay, or was it was it still needing some love? It was needing some love. It, it yeah. played, um, but you know, um, I knew that it was going to go back to Gibson that day. And because we had all um, Gruen, I think, was there and Joe Glazer was there and right. Walter Carter was there and we all met. We just got into our cars and went, drove straight to the custom shop and and put it down in front. Of, and everybody's going, Ooh, right, right. You know, and looking it up and taking the pickups out and looking. Oh, yeah, it was a it's a 
that that's when the day I found out it's either a 54 or 55 because they had no serial number because Mark right. had, had uh, sanded that off. <laughs> right. um, so, um, yeah, it was, and I said, you know, it's, uh, I don't want you to, uh, you know, make it look new. I just want you to make it playable. So, yeah. and then the, the electronics were pretty much gummed up. Um, so you wouldn't believe the amount of people that came out of the woodwork with patent applied for pickups, uh -huh. uh, new old stock uh, toggle switch, yep. new old stock uh, capacitors. Yeah. So it was probably more authentic now than when I played it before right. I lost it, you know. Yeah. And um, and it, I have to tell the story of, of so it, when it, we're on the um, uh Frampton Comes Alive 35 um, mm -hmm. uh, anniversary tour. And um, we had a break and then we started up again um, to do go into the next year, it got extended. And um, so I, I, unbeknownst to the band, I got the guitar back mm -hmm. and uh, from Gibson. And I had um, told my guitar tech, you know, don't tell anybody that I got it. And then we never rehearsed Do You Feel Like I Do, really? obviously. Right. But I just went up, I put the guitar on and I sort of had my back to the, the band. Mm -hmm. And I said, uh, you know, guys, I, I'm worried about my sound here. Could we just, just run the intro to Do You Feel? Would that be okay? Mm -hmm. Wow, we never, okay, I know we don't, but let's, just for me, okay. So, so anyway, I count Rob in. Mm -hmm. uh, dual intro and I start playing the intro on that right. that sweet sweet uh, neck pickup mm -hmm. and I turn around with this big smile and everyone's going like this right that's the sound that's the sound it's the sound right that sounds like you're we're on the record <laughs> yeah <laughs> and and it it really does you know and there's it's I call it the lines on my face sound Mm -hmm. that that um that neck pickup it doesn't matter whether you put a gibson pickup a, a seymour or, right. or whatever whatever it is you know tom holmes i have tom holmes in it at the moment but it doesn't matter what pickups you put in it it still sounds the same you know it, it's it's in the dna of the instrument you know exactly yeah it's, it was it was it was a great story because like we were watching your show and then you know of course i'm you know your tech gave me a little grand tour of the rig you know <laughs> And I'm like, I'm like, we're in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. I go, what's this thing doing here? And he's like, he goes, he plays it every show. He goes, and I, and I go, you know what? Fair enough. You know, you'd lost it for 30 years. You're like, I'm going to play this damn thing, you know? Yeah. If it survived a, an, an airplane crash, I don't think, if we're careful, I don't think it can get in too much more trouble. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, 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 it's come through the fire. Before we wrap up, Peter, um, I, I asked this just about to everyone, and it's always interesting to find out the perspective is, um, the question is, is what would you, what advice would you give to a 20 year old Peter Frampton? Oh, um, well, a 20 year old, I would say, I would say, remember um, how you are guiding your career right now it's all from your gut um, and you you say no when you don't when your gut doesn't feel good but when i then got because when when it got to the comes alive i felt that everybody else around me knew better than i did and that was so wrong yeah. the only person that knew how what was good for me at that particular time was me right. and i unfortunately let too many people advise me, and it was for their agenda, not for mine. And and um, so I would say to any any twenty year old that's starting out in a great band, remember remember what's what's so good about this band, and what's so good about what you're doing, you're playing. Don't let anybody change your plan. Have a plan and stick to it. If they don't want your plan, they're not right for you. If, if, right. if someone comes along and champions your plan, then that's the person you need to be on your team. That's great advice, you know? I mean, and 
to think about that, you know, when you're in the middle of that hurricane, you're a solo artist, you're Peter Frampton. And there's, it's not like you were in humble pie and there was three or four other people in right. the band, or you were in a band situation where, Hey guys, would you, let's put our collective minds together. It's you, it starts and ends with you. And, and, yeah. and, and, and you have to be this, you have to deflect you're, you're, you're in the deflection business at that point, you're deflecting right. offers and people that have a different agenda. It, it must've been just an insane, just an insane period for any solo artist to go through that level of success on something and to come out the other side, but you did, you know, and, and, and it's, 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 it's funny because we were more of a band when there wasn't, um, there wasn't success, you know, but then as soon as, uh, as soon as the, the, the big success of the live album started, then every management tried to separate me from the band so that they could control me. Right. Rather than, as you say, you know, um, having, you know, Jerry Shirley or Greg Ridley or, or Steve Marriott to say um, they want us to do this. You know, I sometimes be the messenger, you know, and bring bring things to the band. And and we I say, I'm not sure about that. No, we're not doing that. You know, absolutely not. We'll do this. And then, you know, everyone would talk about it. And you felt like you were a team within the band, you know? Um, and, you know, when when we first played the forum, Ringo came and I'd been friends with him since uh, I was 20, um, met him on All Things Must Pass sessions. And, and so he came to the show and he's backstage before we go on at the forum. And um, I said, I was like desperate for, for someone to say, I said, what happens now? What, what do I do now, you know? Right. And he would just, he just said, well, it's different for every band, you know? I mean, it's not, not the same, you know? So, um, <laughs> yeah, right. so it's, it's like, uh, thanks a lot. Um, but it is, he's right. You know, each career is completely different. And, um, and yeah. So remember that gut feeling always. You know, it's, it, I've always, I've always operated like that where it's just like, if it doesn't feel right, I can't force it to feel right. You know, no. and no. and I've made a few mistakes in my career where I've gone with somebody else's advice and it didn't work out. And that's the worst feeling yeah, going. Yeah. I hate when I'm right. You know, I, I just like you just. Yeah, you just, if exactly. I'm going to blow it myself. Exactly. Um, Peter, I cannot thank you enough for being here. And I'm honored to call you a friend and I'm honored to know you and, and honored to have you as a guest for my 50th episode. I can't even believe yes. I did one one episode, but but but. We saved, we saved the superstars oh, for the 50th episode. You're too kind, my friend. You're exactly. too kind. <laughs> but uh, when this is all over, man, let's, let's hang. And I, I, I do want to see J.J. Kales first. That's, 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 oh, I would yeah. love to see that guitar. Yeah, and the see, Phoenix. It's over there, actually. I was going to ask you, is that that's it? That's it. Those are my two. Uh, uh, the 335 is the 59. Right. And that never leaves the house or yeah. the studio. And then um, that's the JJKL burst is the 60 next to it. It's it's uh, I've seen pictures of it. It was a beautiful. I didn't even know he had one. And then I then I saw that you 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 purchased it. I was like, wow, that's that's cool. Yeah, you're you're, you're a good guitar hunter, my friend. You're, you're pulling <laughs> guitars out of Venezuela. You're you're, you're, you're JJ Kale's burst. You're you you're you're like a guitar safari king. Well, I, I like that 58 that you you have you found. I don't know where you found that one. South Africa. How did you find how did you go to South Africa? A friend of mine went to South Africa and I'm I'm in New York. I'm writing for my new album. This is in January, late January, early February. A friend of mine calls me up. He goes, I just got a really strange email from a music store in South Africa randomly because I think they knew that that he knew me whatever. He goes, I just sent you some pictures. This is seven o'clock in the morning. So I'm like, well, you have my attention. And I see, <laughs> I see these pictures. Now it's got a really wacky bridge on it. It's got like this plastic homemade looking bridge, but you just see that curl. You're yeah. like, okay. And I've been around this stuff long enough. I go, I know a real guitar when I see them. I go, that's a very nice 58 serial number, everything. And um, so now what? Okay. I, I asked my friend John, he's like, what do you want to do? And he goes, I said, let's go get it. 
right? And we have a friend who flies for an airline is willing to go down there. But John was like, man, this is like my dream in life is to go do this. I go, you want the safari? Have fun. You want to go down <laughs> to South Africa during COVID? Have fun. So he goes down there and he hangs out there for like four or five days and they wire the money. You know, it, was, it wasn't cheap. They wire the money to the store, but there was a, like a four or five day period where it, it's it's kind of in the ether. Right. And then the, the store gets the money. He picks up the guitar. And then as soon as he picks up the guitar, he goes back to his hotel and he gets a notification that his flight to Amsterdam has been canceled. Okay. Then he books through Doha, goes through Doha to Philadelphia. I don't know how they even booked that. And next, about 40 hours later, I don't hear from him. I get a text. It's been repatriated. It made it back. Oh. So, and we call it PJ because the guy's name was PJ Anderton. Okay. And, and there was a South African airline sticker where he had checked it in baggage. And luckily, <laughs> the headstock in the neck still remained intact. Oh, good. So, but that was, that's the story. And to me, that's what I buy. I buy the stories. I don't buy the, yeah, yeah. I don't buy the guitar. I, I, I just like the, I like the safari. But I, I was thinking about today, I was like, you know, Peter Frampton, he's a good guitar hunter. That's like, <laughs> he's under the radar. He doesn't make, he doesn't telegraph his moves. Next thing you know, oh, there's JJ Kale's guitar. <laughs> you know, you, you, you're good. Well, I, yeah, I'm, I wouldn't mind getting something like, um, so how does it compare neckwise with a with a sixty or a fifty nine? It's a little bit bigger, but this particular fifty eight, it's uh, it's eight five four eight eight fifty four eighty eight, which is in the latter part of the year, and they split. They made gold tops and bursts at almost at the same time. Right. So you get serial numbers, but they didn't. They're not sequential. Towards the end of fifty eight, on the sunburst side, the necks start getting a little bit smaller. Mm -hmm. So I like that. I, I don't mind. I like a skinnier neck. I don't Me like these, yeah. these baseball bat right. necks that you just like, I can't play it. And um, so it's, it's more of a smaller 59 ish profile neck, but it just happens to be a 58. So that's great. Yeah, and it sounds wonderful. It sounds wonderful. This one here, it sounds like the front pickup sounds like the almond brothers and the back pickup sounds like humble pie. <laughs> I was like, I was like, perfect comedy. I'll take it. Yeah. Perfect. Okay. Peter, thank you very much for being here. Ladies and gentlemen, the great Peter Frampton. Tune well, in. Thank next you. Week. And yourself, sir. Thank you so much. Anytime, man. And uh, tune in next week for another exciting episode.